we've always had a very long-term view for our business and we want Warby Parker to be one of the most impactful brands in the world a hundred years from now. And we view our investment in our social mission as having incredibly high ROI over uh, a long time frame. Welcome to Lead with We. I'm your host, Simon Mannering, founder and CEO of We First. Lead with We is the podcast where top business leaders and founders reveal how they built their companies to be high impact and high growth by putting We First. Lead with We is produced by Goal 17 Media, storytellers for the common good. Welcome to this week's episode of Lead with We, where I'm talking with Dave Gilboa, who's the co-founder and co-CEO of Warby Parker, the eyewear company where you buy a pair of glasses and another is given to someone in need. And what makes them so special is they've not only launched a company based on a social mission, but they've taken it to scale with extraordinary success. And we're so excited to hear these insights from Dave today. Dave, welcome to Lead With We. Thanks so much for having me on. So Dave, you know, a lot of us know about Warby Parker and your story is really has lit up the entrepreneurial world for years now. So how did you and your partner, Neil, how did you find each other in the first place? And then what was that moment where you actually committed to do something together? Yeah, so we met at business school. Uh, we met uh, the first week just socially uh, at the same time that we met our other two co-founders, Jeff and Andy. Um, so we were all getting our MBAs at Wharton. And we all came together that first semester of school because we realized we were all frustrated consumers, uh, frustrated eyeglass consumers. So uh, before business school, I've been working in consulting and finance and I wanted to take a few months off before going back to school. So I handed in my uh, company issued BlackBerry um, and traveled for six months, backpacked uh, for six months around the world uh, without a phone. And uh, along the way, I lost my only pair of glasses and I came back to the U.S. as a full time student. I had to buy two things. One was a new phone. One was uh, a pair of glasses and the iPhone 3G had just come out. And I went to the Apple store and bought this magical device for two hundred dollars. Uh, and then I realized I was going to have to pay $700 for a new pair of glasses. And that just didn't make sense to me. And so I started complaining to anyone who would listen, uh, including most of my new classmates, uh, about why glasses were, were so expensive uh, and realized that, uh, that Jeff, Fandy, and Neil um, also shared the same frustrations. And uh, Neil um, actually knew uh, the reason why uh, glasses were, were so expensive. He had spent five years working um, at this amazing nonprofit called Vision Spring, where he was setting up operations in a bunch of uh, countries around the world to help distribute glasses to people living on less than $4 a day. And as part of that work, had gone to factories um, all over the world and, and realized that there was nothing in the cost of goods that justified uh, these high prices for glasses. And um, so we all got together and started kind of batting around the idea that uh, eventually led to uh, us launching Warby Parker. And, and what drove the discussion? Was it the potential to have an impact and have this revolutionary business model where you buy one and another is given? Or was it more, oh, there's a marketplace opportunity through you know, a business school lens and we need to disrupt the marketplace? Which was the driver or was it both? I'd say we probably spent an equal amount of time talking about uh, the kind of business model innovation and uh, uh, the, the the structural features of the optical industry that would enable us uh, to create this disruptive business, as we did talking about how we could build a social mission uh, into this for-profit business. All, all four of us were really passionate about wanting to do something to help people. Uh, and that comes I think, from um, each of our backgrounds. So uh, both my parents are doctors. 
Um, I was very close to going to uh, med school. I was you escaped. You escaped med school. I, I, I did. I was a bioengineering major in college. Took all the pre med classes. Took the MCAT and um, was uh, about to go to med school and then kind of veered left. Uh, but you know, my parents had instilled in me the uh, this idea that your profession shouldn't be uh, just an opportunity to earn a paycheck, but um, you should really think about how you can help people on a daily basis. And, and um, you know, I came to the realization that being a practicing physician wasn't the only way to do that, uh, but that learning uh, something about business and, and applying uh, business and management skills to problems that could help large, uh, large numbers of people was kind of another uh, way to, um, uh, to meet those same goals. And uh, Neil had uh, kind of grown up in the nonprofit world. Jeff and Andy were also super passionate um, about doing something impactful. And so um, we spent a lot of time um, really exploring how could we you know, build this model where we could achieve both goals of, of creating a really interesting business that provided a lot of consumer value, but also one that uh, just made the world better. You know, a lot of business today looks at what they've achieved in a vacuum and then said, you know, why is this not fulfilling enough? There's more that I want for myself and for others. But you you started from that point. When you look back now on the journey of Warby Parker, from a really business efficacy point of view, do you think it was really critical to have that sort of goal in place from the outset that you actually wanted something that could inspire you on a daily basis to get out of bed? Yeah, our, our thought was that, uh, you know, the um, launching a business is super exciting and we were really passionate and, and uh, you know, spent many sleepless nights kind of uh, uh, throwing around ideas that would ultimately lead to, to Warby Parker, but uh, to the launch of Warby Parker. But we also realized that for us to uh, keep that same level of passion over not only kind of weeks and, and months around the launch, but years and, and decades to come, that we wanted to build a social mission into the fabric of the company and really ensure that as the company got bigger, that um, the, the impact would be bigger and, and would be multiplied. And, you know, I don't think we realized at the time um, how fundamentally important that would be uh, in attracting and retaining talent. Uh, everyone on our team, regardless if they are designing glasses, they're working on our supply chain, they're working uh, in one of our stores or on our customer experience team, they're able to connect the work that they do uh, back to uh, our, our social mission and understand how their work translates into, into helping people uh, both in the U.S. And, and around the globe. I mean, it, you, what you're saying is so important in that, you know, you really look at the whole human being. And when you actually serve that whole human being by giving them an opportunity to make a difference, they bring that whole self to work. They show up more productively. That helps you build your reputation, get more out of people, keep people longer. It's so important. And it's interesting, you know, from a business point of view, it's one thing to launch a business. It's another to launch a brand. You know, it's always intrigued me, the name Warby Parker. You made this conscious choice to create this sort of empty vessel that you could infuse your own meaning into rather than what a lot of entrepreneurs do, which is trying to come up with a name that somehow telegraphs what they're all about. Where did that come from? Was it, did you have some past brand experience or was it just, you know, you just like the name Warby Parker? Yeah. So none of us on the founding team, there were four of us. Uh, none of us had any entrepreneurial uh, experience. We'd never launched a business. Uh, we didn't come from a, a design background. We'd never launched a, a website, didn't know much about technology. And so we were doing a lot of things for the first time, um, you know, trying to figure out how to design our first collection, uh, create an e-commerce business. 
So we had to figure out uh, all these different disciplines at the same time. But we joke that the the hardest thing we had to do was come up with a name that all four of us liked. Yes, consensus. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, we had four of us without titles and without hierarchy. And, and so we explored uh, a couple thousand different names. And our friends and family members got so sick of every time uh, we, we saw someone we knew, we would test five new names on them. And... Um, you know, we looked at some of the other sites that were selling glasses online at the time, and some of them had names like $39glasses.com and ibuydirect.com and things that were very literal. Um, and we wanted something that was a bit more emotive. And, and so we started talking about different authors or, or artists that um, represented some of the brand values and brand ideals that we had. And in particular, um, talked about the Beat Generation writers and Jack Kerouac. And coincidentally, uh, the New York Public Library had an uh, exhibit on Kerouac's private journals. And so I uh, went up to the uh, the main branch of the New York Library and two of the, uh, the characters in his journals that never made it into his published works that uh, kind of immediately stood out were Warby Pepper and Zag Parker. And so I uh, decided to combine the two and make it our own. And uh, the URL was available for $9, uh, which was really important when we were bootstrapping the business. <laughs> shockingly, shockingly, no one else wanted Warby Pepper. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you know, ultimately, um, you know, we looked at what we were trying to do. We, we wanted to build a brand that uh, that had clear values. And, and we think that brands have a unique ability to create emotional uh, connection with, with consumers. You know, the company is now in excess of, you know, one and a half billion dollars in terms of, you know, size and so on. In 2015, you were named the most innovative company in the world by Fast Company. Like, how would you characterize the different stages of the journey? Yeah, so we're now uh, over a decade uh, in, into this journey. And I'd say uh, half the time, I feel like we're still working out of uh, one of our apartments, still kind of scrappy. Um, and half the time, yeah, I feel like we're becoming a big company. You know, I think uh, more than anything, I'm terrified of acting like a big company. And so uh, we, we really try to ensure that we can remain nimble and uh, make decisions quickly and not build in uh, bureaucracy. How do you do that? How do you do that? How do you cultivate a culture like that, that agile internal culture? You know, one of our core values is take action. And uh, we try to ensure that when we have to make a big decision or there's a long uh, you know, long-term project. Uh, we take some of the same principles that have become the standard in software development around agile methodology and apply that to parts of our business that traditionally haven't been agile, including opening retail stores. So uh, historically, if you wanted to open a store, you would sign a 10 to 15 year lease. You would have this really expensive build out. And uh, we don't have a great crystal ball. We don't know what the world's going to look like in, in 10 years. And, and so, um, especially 2020. So, yeah, right. And so, uh, we have even approached our retail leases, uh, in, in a more agile way where we'll sign in an initial lease term ranging anywhere from as short as 18 months. If it's a new location that is not proven for retail, um, up to five years and then, uh, have multiple five-year options so that we can learn and adapt. And um, then as we build our stores, do so in a modular way um, where you know, if we want to make changes, if we want to introduce new products or services, uh, that we can do so um, without having to um, kind of start from scratch. 
you know, you've got all these bricks and mortar kind of capital investment challenges. And COVID came along and said, oh, hello, everybody. Welcome to my new reality. And every business has been reeling, you know, as a function of retail, people staying at home, safety issues and so on. How did it hit the company? Yeah, so we we started off 2020 on a really high note. It was uh, we were approaching our 10, uh, 10 year birthday as a brand. We were growing quickly, increasing profitability, right. um, all set to open the most stores that we've ever opened in a year. And then, of course, the, the world turned upside down. And on March 13th, we closed all 120 retail stores at, at the same time. We were one of the first national retailers to shut down all stores, the first in the optical industry. We moved all of our um, office employees to uh, work from home. We have uh, an optical lab where we manufacture glasses and ship them out to customers. Uh, we shut that facility down for a day, um, unbolted production lines, moved uh, workstations so they were at least six feet apart, instituted new daily health screenings and, and safety protocols so that we um, felt like it was a safe environment that we could continue to operate. And uh, we thought it was really critical to maintain those operations because we realized that most other uh, optical retailers don't have a viable e-commerce offering. They don't have telemedicine offerings. And so customers were not going to have any options. We have this home try-on program where we'll um, send uh, customers five pairs of glasses without prescription lenses for free. We have a virtual try-on where um, customers can download our iPhone app and virtually try glasses on. And we also have a telemedicine offering where uh, customers can download an app and do a vision test from home. And then an ophthalmologist can write them a prescription remotely. And uh, we saw just a massive surge in demand for um, all these services as um, kind of all retail locations in the industry started shutting down. And so we were um, all of a sudden scrambling and um, had all of our you know, corporate team members that had a free hour, some of our retail team members pitching in, serving those e-commerce customers. And uh, then we thought about, okay, what would it take for us to reopen our stores and do so in a, in a, a, safe, uh, in a safe way and had our uh, tech team rebuild all the technology in our stores to create a completely contactless uh, experience in those stores and now have all of our stores open. We're controlling traffic and limiting traffic into those stores, uh, but we've been able to uh, kind of safely reopen all of those stores. And so, um, you know, we're uh, in general feeling good about um, how quickly we've moved and, and the safety precautions we've taken both for our team and our customers, but it's certainly been, um, you know, very uh, a tumultuous period. Character building. Yes. <laughs> Character building. Character building. I think, I think, you know, New Year's Eve 2021 is going to be the celebration of celebrations. We're all going to be like 2020. Don't, don't hit, hit yourself on the way out. You know, um, I know that you've been, you know, really, um, intentional about civic engagement at this time. I mean, 2020 is a very consequential year in terms of the future of the country. You know, one of the risks with that is that certain issues get politicized, whether you want them to or not. I mean, it seems like, you know, as an extension of social media, everything's fair game these days. You know, you're always going to annoy somebody and you're always going to have the champions for what you believe in and so on. So was there any concern stepping into, you know, using the brand as a platform for getting people out there to vote and, and being judged one way or another by people out there? Uh, we, we don't think so. We don't think, um, you know, it would be appropriate for us to take a stand on partisan issues, uh, but we do 
believe that every business should be, uh, you know, an active part of the communities uh, in, in which they live. And, and uh, for us, now that we have over 120 stores across the country, we feel part of uh, virtually every community in, in the U.S. And, uh, you know, we are fundamental believers that um, every eligible citizen uh, has the right to vote and they should have the opportunity to vote in a safe and fair election. And, you know, as we look at um, uh, kind of some of the barriers to, to voting today, it's clear that the government isn't doing enough on its own and that uh, businesses should be uh, playing an important role here. So one of the things that we started doing is uh, during an employee's uh, onboarding at Warby Parker, one of the steps is to have them register to vote if they're not already registered. Oh, really? That's that's uh, interesting. Just, that's just great. to make it yeah. uh, you know, as easy as possible. Uh, then we've created an internal Google site that uh, that provides all the information about um, where, when, and how uh, someone can vote depending on where they're located. And then uh, we're providing paid time to vote. Um, so providing every employee at least uh, two hours of, of paid time to vote. Uh, we're also linking up with a number of other organizations that are uh, like-minded, including you know, companies like uh, Patagonia and Ben and Jerry's and um, to encourage all businesses to uh, to have paid time to vote. And let me ask you, you know, there's a big challenge that every business leadership team faces today, which is even if they're speaking to an issue which is as fundamental as voting, there's always a choice as to the tone you strike as a brand. Now you see, for example, you mentioned Patagonia, they were very sort of protagonist and, and strident when they were, you know, defending the mining rights and, you know, public lands. Ben and Jerry's have been, you know, very strong in their response to white supremacism and so on. As you sit there as a leading top of mind brand, stepping into kind of the, the social fabric out there, do you have intentional discussions about like what is our tone of voice? Where do we begin and where do we end? How do you navigate that safely? Uh, you know, we, again, don't want to take a partisan stand on, on issues, but uh, we do want to be vocal when there are issues that either violate our values as an organization or where we can be supportive uh, of certain values and where we think we can have an impact. So, you know, one example is we have an office in Nashville. We have hundreds of employees in Nashville in the state of Tennessee. And when they were considering discriminatory bathroom bills, uh, that's where, you know, we thought that this goes against our values around equity and equality for uh, for all humans. And it's an opportunity where um, our voice might have some impact because uh, we have a fairly prominent business in, in Nashville. We have hundreds of, of people there. Um, and so that's uh, you know, an area that we, we uh, took a, a vocal stand, including you know, writing letters to uh, the governor and, and signing on to certain uh, lawsuits. And, and so uh, you know, we um, you know, try to be kind of selective and uh, not be too vocal on, on every issue, but only where we think we can actually have impact and where something is in kind of um, you know, direct conflict or direct affirmation of, of one of our values. Fundamental to your business model is this balance between your social mission and, you know, bottom line profit and growing the company. And it's unavoidable that there's different tension points along the way where 
growth would be better served by making a decision that served your social mission less. There's always, you know, tension at some point. Are there any that you could point to? And how did you think it through? How did you make sure that you kind of stayed true to your original intent? Yeah, there, there's no question that if we cut some of our um, you know, programs to, to benefit nonprofit partners, that uh, you know, we would have a more profitable bottom line in the immediate term. Uh, but we, we've never really felt like we have, have had to make tough decisions on, on that front. We've always had a very long-term view for our business, and we want Warby Parker to be one of the most impactful brands in the world 100 years from now. And so we view our investment in our social mission as having incredibly high ROI over uh, a long time frame. So uh, by building a team that is incredibly passionate, uh, we know that we're going to make the right long-term decisions. And by having customers um, who feel connected to our values, uh, they're going to uh, want to talk about us. They're going to want to have uh, a loyalty to the brand over a very long time frame. And so uh, we think it would be very short-sighted to you know, cut a lot of these efforts or you know, try to maximize profitability by kind of squeezing um, some of the positive impact that, that we're having. You're painting a really important picture, and, and it aligns with what we think of at We First here, which is the most iconic brands of the future will be those with the greatest social impact, because we're living in a very challenged world, especially moving forward. But, you know, I think what's really important for everyone to understand is that when you do take that long-term view, you can make decisions based on that, that, that stay true to your social impact. You're not trying to meet those quarterly projections. You're not trying to hit the, you know, answer those analyst calls, but you're you're staying true to the original intent of the company. And that's incredibly powerful. Now, at some point, there may be the prospect of an IPO. And I'm sure, you know, there's capital partners that give you that pressure all the time. But my question is, if you were ever to do an IPO, does how do you protect your social mission? How do you make sure that going public doesn't compromise the very kind of intent behind the company that and that drove your success for so long? Yeah, I think it would be contingent on us just being very clear that uh, this is something that is uh, super important to us. Uh, it has driven our uh, great results to date, and we'll con- we are firm believers that we'll continue to do so uh, in, in the future. And so, um, you know, hopefully that will enable us to self-select uh, it, investors that are believers in um, in that philosophy, and it has in the past. You know, we we bootstrapped our business. We didn't take. Uh, you know, a penny of outside funding for the first three years as as a business. And, you know, we got some of those same questions around, you know, when you raise venture capital, they're going to want you to, um, you know, show profitability. How are you going to do that um, while you have this social mission? And and we were just very upfront and every fund we've raised over half a billion dollars now from uh, investors who are certainly very profit motivated uh, but uh, you know they they believe that the best way for us to create value over the long term is to continue to invest in our social mission, and if we were to go public, uh, we would be very clear that um, our intention remains the same. And and yeah, no, the right partner for sure. And you know how does that sort of integrity show up in those meetings with investors and so on? Like you know, there's so many industries now or brands out there that talk about their ESG, their environmental, social governance, you know, credentials and so on. Like when you quantify your social mission in the face of investors or partners who are sort of balancing purpose and profit, do you show them the number of sort of 
you know, pairs of glasses that have been distributed? Do you talk about the improvement of people's quality of life? How do you actually quantify something intangible as sort of, you know, doing good in other people's lives? Yeah, we do. Uh, you know, we're very metrics driven. And so, you know, we show the, you know, certainly the number of, of glasses that we just, we've distributed, the number of children that we've helped in, in the U.S., uh, but then uh, we're also big believers in storytelling and and uh, tell individual stories of lives that uh, our programs have, have transformed. And uh, one of the things we do for our employees is that everyone who's been at the company for three years will fly them somewhere in the world to a place like Guatemala or El Salvador uh, to go out in the field with our nonprofit partners to help administer eye exams, to put glasses on someone's face for the first time. And uh, they're able to firsthand see the power uh, of their work and bring back those stories um, where you know, someone who didn't know uh, that glasses existed, all of a sudden uh, they, they can see again and, and they immediately start crying or that grandfather who um, lost the ability to read and his favorite thing to do was read to his grandchildren can do that again and uh, being able to kind of bring bring those stories back is, is super powerful for, for our team and we try to share um, you know, some of that with our investors and board and, and in general, we feel fortunate that we have very supportive investors who are big believers that uh, this is the right way to operate a business and and encourage us to think bigger and, and, and do more on that front. I couldn't agree more. I deeply believe that, you know, the most successful business is now being driven by a marriage of humanity and technology, of purpose and profit, of story and data, as you've spoken to. And, you know, when you look back with the benefit of hindsight now, and you're talking to young entrepreneurs out there who many today, if you, you know, if we look at the data, want to make a difference in the world, what insights might you share with them in terms of taking that good intent to scale? Uh, yeah, three things come to mind. One is the earlier that you build uh, the social mission into your business and your PL, the easier it is to do. Um, you know, to your question around investors, if we didn't have any of these programs in place and all of a sudden we showed them our 2021 budget and we wanted to allocate you know, tens of millions of dollars to these new social uh, uh programs, we'd probably get a lot of pushback uh, because it's unproven. It would be uh, you know, a, a material change to the trajectory that we bid on and a material change to how our PL looks. But because it's been part of our model from, from day one, uh, the, you know, the incremental um, investment that we're making on an annual basis is uh, easier to explain and, and, and easier um, to uh, build in uh, a, as a sustainable financial model. The second piece is really understanding the problem and ensuring that the programs that you're putting in place solve a real problem. And so uh, for us, we recognize that over a billion people around the globe need access to glasses, don't have them. We've worked with great nonprofit partners um, who really understand on the ground how to solve these problems in a sustainable way and uh, you know, ensure that it's not just kind of something that, that looks good, um, to your customers or that looks good from a marketing standpoint, but something that is really addressing the, the source of some of these problems. And then, yeah, the third piece would be finding great partners. Uh, you know, we, we are unapologetically a for-profit business and we're going to focus on providing value to our customers and, uh, we're going to be supportive of our nonprofit partners. But if we try to do everything, if we try to set up these programs all over the world, um, we wouldn't be uh, able to do that successfully. It would cause us to lose focus from product development, from us delivering great customer experiences. And so um, whether it's an organization like Vision Spring that uh, you know, can 
uh, help set up programs in, in Bangladesh um, or uh, you know, partners like the uh, mayor's office in New York or Baltimore, where they have all the right connections to schools and can um, make that uh, those uh, school-based programs as easy as possible, not trying to do everything on your own, I think is also um, highly critical to success here. Dave, thank you for those insights and for, for sharing your journey and also much respect to the entire team at a really difficult time. So thanks for your time today. It was a real pleasure. Great. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Lead with We, where I spoke with Dave Gilboa, the co-founder and co-CEO of Warby Parker, who shared with us how you can actually conceive and launch a business built around a social mission, and how business more broadly can play an increasingly meaningful role around critical issues from COVID to voting. Make sure you subscribe to Lead with We on Apple, Google, or Spotify. And please recommend it to your friends and colleagues so they too can build a purposeful and profitable business. If you'd like to learn more about how you can build a purposeful brand, check out wefirstbranding.com, where we have lots of free resources and case studies. See you on the next episode of Lead with We.